0: I also had the thought while we were singing that uh, for Robert, if if I was just to play one of our service videos every night in his formative years, he would just think that's normal and that everybody does that. So it gave me an idea for the future when he gets a little bit older. But uh, Matthew chapter 1, uh, I'll read verses 1 through 17. And Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar. And Eliezer, the father of Matthan, and Matthan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations." Pray in a moment. Just want to also give a couple praises. I mentioned last week, my dad was having shoulder replacement surgery. That went very well. He said his biggest concern now is trying to do things left-handed. To which I responded, "It's not that hard. As somebody who's left-handed, if that's your biggest fear, that's easy." Uh, Also, we're thankful Robbie did pass his hearing test on Friday. We we thought he would, but I appreciate everyone's prayers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for this day and this church. Lord, we want to pray for the whole family as COVID is going through the family. Lord, we want to pray nobody else gets sick. And also just want to pray for speedy recoveries for Steve and Annalise and Toby, Lord, and uh, just that they're feeling 100% very, very soon, Lord. And we uh, just thank you so much for them. Also pray for Katie on this special birthday, Lord, and... um, Lord, just want to pray for your blessings for her for this next year. Lord, we pray for Jackie and Dan Bauer as they return to Mayo. And Lord, we, we pray for them for answers. Lord, we pray for the doctors who are treating her and taking care of her. Lord, we thank you for a world-renowned hospital like the Mayo Clinic, Lord. And we just we, Lord, pray for treatment and options and a plan and answers. Lord, we pray for all those things. We pray for her health. Lord, and we pray for the family who's been in this together. Lord, we pray for our time in your word. We continue to pray for these passages in Matthew as we study them, Lord. And may we point pointed to your gospel. Lord, we also want to continue to pray for Ellen's co-worker who's recovering from a very significant surgery, Lord. And we just continue to pray for him, Lord, that he um, continue to, to heal. And, Lord, it seems like there's been some setbacks and just continue to pray. That he be getting better, be getting stronger, be feeling better. Lord, we pray for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So we're continuing in our Advent series, looking at the birth passages of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, we looked at the first verse of Matthew, where we talked of Jesus as the Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. David and Abraham are two of the most prominent figures in the line of Jesus. And so Matthew emphasizes them at the beginning of his gospel. But then verses 2 through 16 give further elaboration on a genealogy which leads from Abraham ultimately to Joseph and to Jesus. Forty-two names are given in the genealogy. Divided into three sections of 14 names. 14 names from Abraham to David. 14 names from David to the Babylonian exile. 14 names from the Babylonian exile to Jesus. And so the plan this morning is to dig into this genealogy because it can be easy to skim through and just read it like a list of names. But it's a list of names which points us to the gospel to the grace of God, to the mission of Christ, and to the providential hand of God working throughout history. Now, before we get to the list, and for some of you, you will learn more today about genealogy than you maybe ever wanted to know, but before we get into the list, I wanted to give a brief excursus. Because Matthew's Gospel gives us one of two genealogies of Jesus that we see in the New Testament. The other is found in Luke chapter 3. And they are different. Maybe some of you have noticed that before. They are different. Not just a little bit different. Luke's genealogy goes backwards from Jesus to Adam, ultimately to God. And the point of that is that Adam, going back to Adam, is that Jesus represents all of humanity. Matthew's Gospel starts with Abraham and moves forward to Jesus. That makes sense because it is to Abraham that the Lord made the great promises of a holy people, of a holy land, and of blessings. Now, the genealogies from Abraham to David are pretty similar. They're essentially the same. Matthew gives one extra name. That's not so unusual. One thing about biblical genealogies in general is that Sometimes there could be generations that get skipped in the list. So when it says A was the father of B, sometimes A could actually be a grandfather, a great-grandfather. The point is that it's people in a family line where they are descendants from each other. Um, So the lists are not always exhaustive. But the issue with Matthew and Luke is once you get to David, the two lists diverge almost entirely. Matthew's genealogy goes from David to Solomon and through Solomon's line. Luke's genealogy goes from David to another of his sons, Nathan, and Nathan's line. Both list someone named Zerubbabel and someone named Shealtiel. I assume they're the same people in both Gospels. But after that, that's where the similarities end. The two genealogies are completely different. Now, why is that? Why are they different? There are all sorts of theories. And I'll be honest, any solution to the issue is somewhat speculative. One of the oldest theories, which goes back to the early church, is the suggestion that They were giving genealogies for both Joseph and Mary. That's possible, but it shouldn't be assumed. Most importantly, because the Bible never says that. It would also be highly unusual to give a woman's genealogy in ancient times. Although, as one scholar pointed out, it was also highly unusual to have a virgin birth. So it's possible. Other suggestions... Perhaps one of the genealogies is royal and one is legal. That's ultimately where I personally land. Now what's that mean, though? So Matthew's genealogy, which we're looking at this morning, goes from David to Solomon to Rehoboam to Abijah, etc. That is the Israelite monarchy of the Old Testament. Those are the kings. Those people can be found in Old Testament genealogies. Matthew gives the kings. Luke doesn't. But both go through David. So the suggestion is that Jesus is in the line of David. But while the royal line goes through Solomon, Jesus is not part of the Solomonic line. Is that to say that Jesus is not legitimately royal? No. Who knows? Perhaps the royal line had died off. And Joseph was the next in line. I don't know if anybody remembers the movie King Ralph. It was a comedy starring John Goodman in the 90s. Where the entire royal family is at a function and dies. And you have John Goodman, who's an American, who finds out, unbeknownst to him, that he was next in line to be king. And so he becomes the king of England. Maybe the line died off. And it picked up in Joseph. Even if that's not the case, Jesus is the divinely appointed king from the line of David. Now we see several instances in the Old Testament where just because someone is older or appears to be first in line for something does not mean that they always get it. God favors Abel over Cain. Jacob over his older brother Esau. Judah is not the oldest of the 12 tribes of Israel, but he's the one God chooses. So it could be a situation like that. Now, certainly, we should not think that either of the gospel writers were just arbitrarily listing names. Luke's genealogy is interesting because it goes another route off of the Davidic line. Luke, in his gospel, famously, is very meticulous and detail-oriented. He knows the Old Testament. Why does he give us the list that he gives us? He gives it to us because it's true. That's the line. That does not mean that Matthew's line is wrong. Again, the theory that I think makes the most sense is that Matthew is giving the kings. The monarchy ends long before Jesus comes into the world. There are people living in the world today who are descendants of European and other parts of the country. People living today who are descendants of monarchies who are no longer in power. And so they're just ordinary citizens. But from the line of the kings, Matthew was pointing to Jesus as the ultimate king. There are other theories about why the genealogies could be different. Maybe it's as simple as Matthew and Luke showing us that Jesus is related to David from both sides of Joseph's family. Maybe Joseph's parents died and he was adopted, and so it's giving his blood genealogy and his adopted family's genealogy. Jesus is adopted. Maybe that makes sense. There are other theories. Some get more and more complicated. But one thing that's important to remember is that it's not a new thing that Matthew and Luke have different genealogies. Theologians and scholars have been wrestling with this throughout the history of the church. We have church theologians commenting on this as early as the third century. But I think it's safe to say that the question goes back even further than that. So there are a couple things to keep in mind. Because sometimes skeptics like to point to the two different genealogies as if that's undermining the Bible. People sometimes like to make it seem like, I'll put it like this. You watch something or read a book like the Da Vinci Code, and they make it seem like the Bible was just kind of hand-picked, put together. People kind of edited things, picked and chose But I think it should actually be edifying that Matthew and Luke give these two different genealogies that have been known about for the whole history of the church, and both of them are in the Bible. They didn't go, you know what, this is kind of complicated how this all fits together, so let's just take one of these out. No, both were written by the apostles, and the church preserved them throughout time. Just because there's not an easy solution to why they're different, does not mean that there's no solution. It's a powerful reminder of the efforts throughout history, throughout the history of the church to preserve the biblical text and not be editors, but rather letting the text speak for itself. Because the Bible is the word of God. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is god breathed The Word of God does not need to be explained away. Thomas Jefferson was famous for producing his own Bible, where he cut out the parts he disagreed with. That's not how you treat God's Word. Matthew and Luke gave two genealogies as we have them, and they're both God's Word. For the skeptics and those who want to use that against the historicity or accuracy of the Bible... Or even for the Christian, who's uncomfortable with the discrepancy. That needn't be so. Again, just because we don't know exactly why the genealogies are different does not mean that a solution doesn't exist. As I've outlined, there are no shortage of plausible theories. We just don't know for sure which one it is. I give so much time to this, Again, because some of you, I'm sure, have thought about this or read about this over the years. So the remainder of our time this morning, we'll work through Matthew's genealogy that he gives in his gospel. And since Matthew breaks it into three sections, that's what we'll do as well, beginning with the first section, Abraham through David. Verse 2. The genealogy begins with David. I'm sorry, with Abraham. Abraham is the progenitor of God's people, the Israelites. He's the one through whom the Lord makes his covenant promises. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac is the son promised to Abraham and Sarah. He was supernaturally brought about in this couple who were well advanced in years and beyond childbearing age. The line goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. This is the line that we see in the book of Genesis. The text says Judah and his brothers. That seems to be done to give special attention to the brothers of Judah who were the ancestors of the 12 tribes of Israel. But biblically, Judah is the most significant because it is he who carries on the royal bloodline that leads to Christ. Now, in Genesis, we see a lot of attention given to Abraham and God's call upon his life. We see stories of Isaac and him finding a wife. We see stories of Jacob and his brother Esau and the bitter rivalry that they had. And there are also stories about Judah, but he's far overshadowed in Genesis by one of his own brothers, Joseph. Why is that? Why does Joseph get more attention when it's Judah who leads to Jesus? As a brief reminder, Joseph is the favored son of Jacob, and his brothers hate him for this. This leads to an epic story in Genesis, chapters 37 and 39 through 50, where the brothers of Joseph plot against him, plot against his life, and he's ultimately sold into slavery in Egypt. But through divine intervention, Joseph will work his way up in Pharaoh's eyes and use a God-given ability he has to interpret dreams and prophecies And he foretells a terrible famine that will hit Egypt. He's put in charge of preparations for the Egyptians during the famine. When the famine happens, the Israelites and his family are hit very hard. They come to to Egypt not knowing Joseph is even still alive, seeking help. And it is Joseph who is in a position... To save his own family, to save Israel, and most importantly, to save Judah. Joseph's story is given so much attention because it saves Judah, which continues the family line that leads to Christ. I also highlight that because the people in the line start getting less attention in the Old Testament. They're there, they're mentioned but they're somewhat in the background of larger events. We don't see the line as prominently in the book of Exodus or that whole Exodus saga, but they're there and God is still working. Sometimes the Lord is quietly at work, but he's no less at work in those times. God is faithful to this line, this genealogy throughout the centuries, working through time and space to bring forth his promised son from this line, the Lord Jesus. God is working today. At some times in our lives, we might see it more clearly than others. At some times in church history, it seemed more apparent. But God is never any less at work. God is intimately connected to his world. And at work in our world today, as we see these many centuries ago. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of David, and he's the God of today. We continue in verse 3. It mentions Judah as the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Now, Tamar is noteworthy because she's a woman. And she's the first of four women mentioned in this genealogy. Now, I had mentioned earlier that giving a woman's genealogy at this time was all but unheard of, but women were sometimes listed in genealogies. For instance, in the Old Testament, in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, there's a genealogy which lists 14 women, but it's interesting that Matthew chooses the four women that he chooses, These four women are all fairly prominent women in the Old Testament. We know them in the Bible. Once you get past Judah in the Bible, again, the men continue to not be as prominent until you get to Boaz and eventually David. But these women, in that sort of middle period are all fairly prominent. But they're not the most prominent women in the Bible. The genealogy does not mention Sarah, the wife of Abraham, through whom the promised Isaac was born. It doesn't mention Rebekah, the faithful wife of Isaac and mother of Jacob. There's no mention of Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob. But it lists four women who are kind of the next most prominent in the Bible. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. It's quite the interesting list. You have Ruth, who might be the most morally spotless and unimpeachable woman in the Old Testament. Her first husband died, and then she married a distant relative of his and had a son. But then you have Tamar, who tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her and conceives a child by him after her husband died. She disguises herself as a prostitute and sold herself to Judah. A link in the line that leads to Jesus, conceived through deception and trickery. You have Rahab, who had been a prostitute. Bathsheba had an affair with King David, and David later had her husband Uriah sent to the front lines in battle to be killed. So that David could marry her. The first child that they conceived died. Solomon came along later. But their relationship was forged in adultery and murder. And these are the people that lead to Jesus. Something else that's noteworthy. One of the commonalities of the four women that Matthew lists is that none of them are Israelites. Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites. Ruth is a Moabite. Bathsheba is a Hittite. And so part of what these four women are doing from the opening of this gospel is showing us that Jesus is for the whole world. That this line that leads to Jesus is a picture of the whole world. Borrowing an idea from Tim Keller, who, by the way, I mentioned Tim Keller quite a bit, Uh, He announced yesterday that he has stage 4 pancreatic cancer. So if you remember him in your prayers, uh, definitely a highly influential pastor. But this line that leads to Jesus gives us kings and prostitutes, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, saints and sinners. But God works through all of them to bring Jesus into the world. The gospel is good news for the whole world. Matthew ends his gospel by giving the Great Commission and sending the disciples out into the world to preach the good news. And we have a picture of the gospel for the whole world in this opening genealogy. There are a couple guys who I follow on social media who were formerly incarcerated. They used to be in prison. And sometimes I'll look at comments that people make to these guys and how hateful and mean that they can be to these people who have tried to turn their lives around. Like the conflict between Jean Valjean and Javert and Les Miserables. Some can struggle to believe that people can never change, that lives can change. We look at a person, what what they did in their past, and act like that defines their whole life. We can look at a person's past and act like that's who they are. We can look at a person's past sins and act like they'll never overcome them. But as Christians, we cannot think that way. We cannot be so cynical because we have the good news of the gospel. And that message does change lives and it does redeem. And we must remember that in our own lives when we're struggling, that we have a good God who is at work We must remember that in our interactions with others. That someone who doesn't know Jesus, someone who doesn't even want to know Jesus, is never so far gone. We might sometimes be in a person's life to share the good news with them, to love them, to encourage them, to help them. We come to our second section. These two will be a little bit more brief. From David... To the exile. David is the great king of Israel. Solomon, his son, is his successor. You read about them and the rest of the monarchs of the Davidic dynasty, primarily in the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. They also have appearances in the prophets. Now, those books typically are not the most well-known, well-versed, most popular books among Christians. Although there's a a lot of very interesting things that happen in the monarchy. David's monarchy could be a television show. It's pretty fascinating. But again, I know for most of us, myself included, they're typically not the passages we're most familiar with. Some of the kings in the Davidic dynasty can be pretty obscure, but it's a very colorful family. And so we'll very briefly look at some of these people in the very line that leads to Jesus. Looking at verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now we've already discussed David. He seduces a married woman. But the one thing to highlight is that Matthew does not actually name Bathsheba. Matthew names the other three women in the genealogy, but he calls Bathsheba the wife of Uriah. Why does he do that? Once again, borrowing from Tim Keller, I think he's onto to something when he suggests that it's not so much downplaying Bathsheba. But it's more reminding us of Uriah. The husband of Bathsheba, who David had killed. It's mentioning Uriah in the genealogy to confront us with David's great sin that David had a son by the wife of another man. This genealogy does not hide from the sins of the people in the line of Jesus. We've already seen that in the first section. But we will see that on an even grander scale with the kings, as, again, some of them are truly horrendous. We aren't defined by where we come from, for good or for ill. If we come from greatness, that doesn't just automatically transfer to us by birth. We have to live our own lives. But if we come from infamy, that does not doom us. It can feel that way sometimes. It can be an unfortunate result oftentimes, but it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus is descended from killers, prostitutes, and adulterers. And again, we're going to elaborate quickly on the kings and go through some of these. Now, if you don't know the Bible as well, it might be easy to kind of assume that the kings of Israel are probably pretty good people, but it's not the case. Most of the time. There are some good kings amid some truly wicked and evil kings of Israel. And so again, let's look at some of these folks in the Davidic dynasty. Verse 7. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. So Solomon is the son of David, the wise king of Israel but he spends lavishly on projects and bankrupts Israel, basically. His son, Rehoboam, has similar lavishness to his father, and they have to continue raising taxes. Things get so bad during his reign that Israel splits and is no longer a divided nation. Within two generations of David, Israel had split And the Davidic monarchy was ruling the smaller portion of Israel from the south, while most of the tribes were in the north. And Israel in the Bible is never reunited in the Old Testament. Abijah ends up making similar blunders. Asaph is a decent king. Verse 8. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, And Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Jehoshaphat, pretty good king. Grant Osborne describes his reign as, Jehoshaphat was known for godliness, like his father, and brought further reform, and even set out priests to teach the people the ways of the Lord. Even the surrounding nations began to fear the Lord. Joram comes next. He's not a good king. But the story gets very interesting here. As a reminder, Israel is divided into two kingdoms. Joram marries a woman who's a princess from the northern kingdom. Her name was Athaliah. When Joram dies, he's replaced by his son Ahaziah. Ahaziah is actually not listed here in Matthew. But he's the next king. When Ahaziah is king... Both he and the king of the northern kingdom are murdered in a power takeover. Again, this is pretty colorful. So Athaliah, her brother in the north, and her son in the south, both die. And she seizes the throne of the southern kingdom and becomes the ruling monarch of Jerusalem. Ahaziah had been her only son. And so she starts having immediate family members killed off, including her own grandson. That's in the Bible. Some of you guys might be thinking, I thought my family was pretty messed up. (laughs) Athaliah has another grandson who's saved and protected by some of his family members. I thought before I need to preach through these whole stories because it is pretty interesting. The protected grandson is also not listed here in Matthew. Again, Matthew does skip a few names here and there. His name is Jehoash. Um, Jehoash is the father of the next king, who's Uzziah. But again, you have this really violent family history. uh, When Jehoash becomes king, his grandmother, Athaliah ends up being executed. So it's a whole thing. Um, The reason why a few names are skipped here, twofold. One, Matthew's already told us of some pretty wicked people, so it seems like he's not listing everyone. Secondly, Matthew clearly has an objective of getting three lists of 14 names, and that's part of why he's cutting some names out. Jehoash's son is Uzziah. He's a pretty good king. Looking at verses 9 and 10. Uzziah's son, Jotham, decent king. But then Jotham's son Ahaz fails to listen to the prophet Isaiah. If you remember from two years ago, we did four weeks in Isaiah during Advent. And in Isaiah, Ahaz does not listen to the prophet, fails to trust God, tries to exercise his own control and make diplomatic blunders, which seal the fate of Israel's government, ultimately setting things in motion for the conquering of his kingdom. Manasseh, maybe the worst of the kings of Israel. He builds pagan altars in the temple courts, practices sorcery and divination, sacrifices one of his own sons. Josiah, mentioned in verse 10, is a good king. He does a lot to restore stability and order to Israel and also reinstates the Passover, which had... Fallen out of favor. Jeconiah is the last king listed in this second section. He's the king when Jerusalem falls, which is why he's noteworthy. He's the final king of Israel's southern kingdom to rule in the promised land. Again, that's a very brief cross section. And it's quite the ragtag group of misfits. Matthew ends verse 11 by talking about the deportation to Babylon. Now, everything in this genealogy has been centered around people, but the beginning of the third list of names revolves around an event. And that brings us to our third section. And again, this one will be the shortest, mainly because we'll see in a second. So far, we've covered 28 people, there are 14 more in the list. Most of the people in the third list are actually unknown outside of the Bible. We just have their names. We know the early figures of the exile. Again, we talked at great length about the exile a couple of years ago. That after many generations of sin and numerous evil kings and prophets who had warned the kings to reform and restore Israel... The two divided kingdoms fell. First, the northern kingdom. But Matthew's genealogy focuses on the southern kingdom, which is conquered by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. It's a divine judgment from God upon an unfaithful Israel. They lose the kingdom. They lose Jerusalem. The temple is destroyed. The people are deported to a foreign land. The darkest days in the history of Israel. But what this genealogy, this third group, reminds us of is that even though the monarchy did not reign and the land was lost, that the line was not forgotten. When Jerusalem fell, that might have looked like the end of the story, but God was still at work. That's what all of this shows us, that God has been at work throughout history. When Jesus went to the cross... When the disciples saw their beloved teacher brutally crucified, they thought it was all over. But it was only just the beginning. Throughout church history, people have tried to persecute the church, ban the Bible, kill Christians. Yet God's word has been preached. His church has persevered. God continued to work through this line because the Lord is faithful to his promises. He was faithful to the promise he made to Abraham of providing offspring. He was faithful to the promise to David of providing a future king whose kingdom would never end. And that's what this third group reminds us of. Verse 12, the list mentions Jeconiah, again, the last of the kings before the exile. Shiltiel and Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is significant because he would be appointed as the governor over the Israelites at the end of the exile when they return to the Holy Land. He's mentioned in five books in the Old Testament. He's also significant because he's, him and Shealtiel are the last of the names in the genealogy that we know anything about until Joseph. None of the people after Zerubbabel are named anywhere else in the Bible. So where does Matthew get those names from? It does appear that there were at least some genealogical records at this time period. Josephus, the ancient historian, mentions records of genealogies. Not a Christian, by the way, he was Jewish. Given the prominence of the line from David, it's certainly plausible that they had records. Matthew ends this third genealogy by finally arriving at Joseph and Mary, and then ultimately to Jesus. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. Forty-two generations to get from Abraham to the Lord Jesus. Three sets of fourteen. Different theories as to what that number means. I subscribe to the theory that the three fourteens are, when you divide them, it's three groups of two sevens. So six sevens, Jesus being the seventh seven, pointing to perfection. That's my belief. There's a bunch of different numbers in the Bible can always get pretty complicated as to their meaning and significance. We don't know exactly where the forty-two comes from. It's obviously meaningful to Matthew. Sometimes I think when we get to heaven, the first few days is just kind of straightening some of the things that we always wondered about the Bible out. We'll have some questions. We don't always know the answers. Forty-two generations to get from Abraham to Jesus. We see the sovereignty of God, the faithfulness of God, and the plan of God. And we see the Messiah... Who has come into the world? Now, we've covered a lot of ground this morning. I want to close with this. As we spent this week and last week looking at this genealogy, it's a powerful reminder of God's work throughout history. The promise that God made to Abraham and fulfilled, the promise that God made to David and fulfilled. All throughout history, God has been at work. We see him at work in the genealogy that leads to Jesus. But that also points to his mission in the world, which is God's redemptive purpose and gospel through Jesus to redeem a sinful and fallen world. It's a major theme of Matthew's gospel. It's a major theme of Matthew's Christmas story. But it's also a major theme of the whole Bible, the Lord God working to restore a fallen humanity. And Christmas is a reminder of that. As God's only son, Christ Jesus came into the world and he came for a purpose to go to the cross for the sins of the world. And so it's important to understand what God has done throughout history but also to understand what God is doing in the world today. The Old Testament points forward to Christ. The Old Testament points forward to the King from the line of David. The Gospels are that fulfillment and promise in Christ. The church's job today is to share the message of Christ, to share the good news of the Gospel with the world. As we rapidly approach the end of this year, I want to have a special focus in my preaching this next year on God's mission for the world, which is to share the good news. In February, Lord willing, we're planning to bring in a man who's going to do a training on evangelism. I think it's going to be so good for all of us. So excited for that. It's something that most of us know is important. Sharing our faith. We know it's important, but for most of us, it's also a tremendous struggle. But sharing the good news and being disciples of Christ and being witnesses to the faith that we have and serving and loving people, that is what God has called us to do. That is what Jesus has called us to do. To make disciples. To baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. To live out the Great Commission. And so as we look at this genealogy at the beginning of the New Testament, it's not just a bunch of names to skip over so we can get to something more interesting. Rather, it's a bunch of chapters in God's story leading up to Christ and his work of bringing redemption to a fallen world, to the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word and through your work throughout history to bring forth our Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that he offers. Lord, that as fallen and sinful people, there is hope and redemption through him, through believing in him, through trusting in the gospel. Lord, may we be your people. May we live that out. And may we share that with our community, our neighbors and the world. In Jesus' name, amen.